This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrily Brennan. Today, we're catching up with Luke Dunn. Luke and his family farm at Oak Hills and Mandadri, 30 k's east of Parks in the Central West. They run a mixed farming operation, focusing on wool and sheep meat production. In this episode, our mixed farming officer, Rowan Leach, was invited out to see the process of fleece weighing at shearing time. In Luke's words, this helps them produce a consistent product and helps drive their decision-making around their wool enterprise. You'll also hear how diversified sheep enterprises, including merinos, crossbred lambs, and wool growing weathers, all contributes to minimising this farm business's risk. Local Land Services Mixed Farming Officer, Rowan Leach, got his hands dirty out in the shearing shed to bring you this great chat with Luke in amongst the sheep. So, g'day, Seeds for Success listeners. It's Rowan Leach here from Local Land Services. You might notice something a little bit different this time. We've got a bit of background noise happening. And today I'm with Luke Dunn. Luke, welcome to the Seeds for Success podcast. Thank you, Rowan. Mate, do you mind telling me where we are? Well, we're in the shearing shed. It's a bloody beautiful sunny day and we probably should be outside because we haven't seen sunlight like this for a while. We're about 30, 40 k's east of Parks in the Central West. And yeah, shearing time. How good. While it's a beautiful sunny day, there's far more important things happening in the shearing shed today, mate. Isn't that right? Yep. We're fleece weighing at the moment, taking some measurements. Awesome. And what sheep are you fleece weighing? So these are our um, classed in uh, maiden merino ewes. And when you say classed in, what do you mean there? These have already been through and classed in and joined. So... We've taken a body weight on them and a micron side sample and been through and visually classed them back in January and they've been put in with rams and joined. And you use electronic tags to facilitate all that, don't you? Yeah, we've gone down that line. Everything's been electronic tagged. We take a lot of measurements, probably not super amount, but a fair few. We've been doing that for probably at least 13 to 14 years. So quite a while. Yeah, right. Mate, so can you just talk me through and maybe describe to the listeners step-by-step the fleece weighing process that we're watching here? So we've got a couple of rouseabouts working here on the raised board and we're using a Bluetooth tag reader and they're going along and scanning the electronic tag on the sheep and that's wirelessly sending through the tag number to a barcode printer. It prints it out as a barcode. And then we have a little setup that's got stand one, two, and three on it. And the tag's placed next to the stand. And then when the fleece comes in, we have someone on the stand who puts it on the weigh scales, scans the barcode with a barcode reader, and then the fleece weight's recorded. We've also got the previous test from December with the micron on it. It's written down on the little tag number. And then the tag is passed to our classer as the fleece is thrown on the table. And then it's skirted and classed as usual. That'd make the classer's job a fair bit easier. We think so. It's the first time we've actually done that second part of passing the tag along with the micron. 
that's a bit of a litmus test for something we want to do a bit later on. And we our discussions before shearing of how we're going to do it because we wanted to try and keep it simple and not overload the staff. We actually come up with a pretty good solution to begin with and it seems like it's really, really working. It's helping the classer get his lines a little bit better. And yeah, it's giving us a better indication of the fleeces that we're getting from this drop because we're then using that little ticket and putting them in tins. So when we're going to do a second classing, if we think we're a bit overstocked this year, we can add a bit more value to our figures that's subjective, not so much objective. Yeah, cool. So you're using both subjective and objective measurements to sort of help reach your breeding objectives. Yeah, that's what our goal. So how are the fleeces testing? They're testing pretty well, actually. Um, Our micron's probably a little bit up, but not by much, not a whole micron anyway, and the weights are really, really good. We are achieving the objective of trying to increase that fleece weight a little bit and keep our micron down where we want to be in that 17.5 to probably 18 micron and they're cutting 5.8, 5.9 kilos. That's with the belly. And what's the live weight of these animals? Oh, good question. We're probably going to run these through the way, like run 100 of them so, and possibly weigh them after we finish off shears just to get a bit of an idea. But they would have averaged, as a hogget weight, back in December when they were side sampled, I reckon they would have been late 40s into the early 50 kilos. So I was just talking to the shearers before, and it certainly doesn't slow them down, but is there an increased labour component into this fleece weighing? I think there would, and as we've talked about before, it's not huge. We have a four-stand shed, but we're currently using three shearers and then substituting that four-shear out to basically do this operation for these maiden ewes. And they're getting through about 100 a run, they've just said. So you're pretty happy with that? We're quite happy with that. Everything that we do with the technology, I I think you might have talked to some other people in podcasts about technology before, but it's making that data collection really, really simple and streamline at what we're doing, not making it overly complicated, not trying to add too much more labour for it and just collect the data point when we can, if we can, and make sure it's useful and not useless. So, wrapping all that together, why do you fleece test? Is it a cost return thing or is it more a decision support tool? It's probably a bit of both. It helps with the decision. It helps us keep on track with our objective of what we want and know where we are. It helps us with our classing. I think, yeah, it all ties back in. It's a bit of a hard question. It's something I really want to do a little bit more as work out. Is that labour component worth it? It seems to be. Um, We talked to our wool broker and in the last three years we've had exceptionally good seasons, a lot of rain and typical conversation you hear people's micron or fibre diameter starting to blow out from the season. We haven't really experienced that so whilst our fleece weight's gone up our micron stayed where it is and I think that's because we are testing and we're genetically selecting for that and keeping track on it. I believe that, but I'm sure there'll be plenty of people who might have some conjecture. I don't know. Yeah, I uh, just felt one of the nice bright fleeces before and it it felt quite sticky. You said that that's probably because they've got plenty of condition on them. Yeah, they've got a bit of condition on them. That's one of our big objectives that we're trying to build in is trying to keep either the dust or the wet weather out of them consistently. So yeah, we'd read that little bit of condition, but not too much condition. So that's good that you're able to maintain that condition, but also keep your, your fibre diameter down. Yeah. Mate, I just want to chase that, what you said before about the marketing. 
your broker, it's really helps with your marketing and your broker is desperate to get your wool bales? Oh, I don't know. He was here yesterday. You could have asked him and I'm, I'm not him, but we were having a chat yesterday about consistency and staple length and that visual appearance of the wool and the variation in the micron. He said, well, we're not probably getting an upfront premium at the market for that. It just certainly helps keep a consistent line, I suppose, of making lines up and for his job of probably selling it as one lot, he seems to think it makes it a bit easier. So whilst there's no actual sense premium for it too much, I don't know, that was his words. So it probably doesn't add much cream, but it just helps the overall bread and butter of the operation. Yeah. Well, we might head to somewhere a little bit more quiet to finish the rest of the podcast and we'll probably see you in the kitchen. Okay, thank you. Okay, so we're now sitting outside in the sheep yards. I know we've changed the order up a little bit, but that's just to fit the fleece testing in at the start of the podcast. But Luke, would you mind going through what you do here at, at Oak Hill and Mandatory in terms of your enterprise? I think it's a pretty big operation. Uh, well, not big in terms of numbers, but we do a fair bit with sheep, I think. We're predominantly wool growers, but we're mixed, so we do crossbred lambs as well, and we run a weather portion. And we mix that all in together. So crossbred lambs is in your joining Border Leicester rams to your use? You know what Border Leicester's? We're joining White Suffix and we're joining them, well, as a terminal sire, but basically to anything that misses a lamb, first go out of our merino breeding mob or culled out of our maidens up front, we'll go into a first cross program. To add to that mix, we do two drops of first cross a year, not just one. We do a spring and an autumn drop and then we keep all of our weather wieners well not all of them we class half of them in and keep them for over 18 months we'll get one shearing out of them as a lamb and then another shearing out of half of them again as a hoggett and then we'll sell the other half before then and then we just keep turning them over so we're probably running a thousand weathers roughly a thousand weathers a bit more at a time but in two kinds of age groups and just keep rolling them over while the season's good. So we're selling into that mutton market and getting their wool, and there seems to be some really, really good value in that at the moment with the mutton job. Yeah, so how many ewes are you joining to Merinos, and how many would you be joining to your Suffolk's? We'd be nearly joining 3,000 ewes in our Merinos, and we'd be joining probably 2,000 to our white Suffolk. Roughly 1,000 for a spring drop and 1,000 for an autumn drop. Yeah, cool. I'm really going to dive into that in a little bit, but I'll just get some more background on the farm if you don't mind. So how many hectares have you got here at, at Oak Hills? Oh, geez, you caught me there. Like, <laughs> I can give you probably an acres, about 6,000 acres roughly. About 6,000 acres, yeah. yeah. And what are the soil types here? I know the Cookamidra Hills are some pretty challenging soil types, but it looks absolutely glorious at the moment. Oh, we have a mixture, absolute mixture. We have a bit of red country. We've got some pretty trap rock country. Um, we got a little bit of loose and flat country along the creek down here. Yes, a quite variable sandy, acidic soil, so a quite a mixture. So grazing country and cropping country, We're, yeah, a fair bit of a mixture. So that sounds like it's a good mix of soil types for your pretty varied operation. Have you got sort of try and match certain enterprises to certain class of soil type? Yes and no, we probably do. As you said, we've got varied soil types, so we have varied enterprises. We'll run our merinos and lamb them down in that the hillier track prop kind of country through the winter, and then we'll be running our crossbred lambs on the probably the redder country, and then we'll be bringing our wiener merino 
lambs up to scratch on that red country as well. We have quite a large grazing crop program and a main season crop program and obviously native grass lands. So would you mind expanding a bit on the cropping operation? What have you got in this year? Well, we've got all our crop in this year, very luckily. Unfortunately, I think there's a lot of people who who haven't. I think it's just sheer luck, but we put a fair bit of grazing crop in and got it in early. So we grow a bit of oats, we grow kitty hawk grazing wheat, something we've been doing for the last three or four years. We joined the bandwagon of the 970 grazing canola. We put that in our operation, but we grow a fair bit of main season canola and main season wheat. And that's roughly it, really. I'd say it's probably got a fair bit to do with soil type, the fact that you've been able to get onto your country when a lot of the probably more west or flatter guys are probably still looking at puddles at the moment, which is pretty unfortunate. But I guess you cop that in the good years, don't you? Oh, yeah. I, I guess so. I, yeah, I think it's just luck. <laughs> maybe some management, but maybe luck. I don't know. <laughs> and so how have you been finding the 970 grazing canola? The first year, which would have been 2020, we uh, had a crack at putting it in, and it was unbelievable. It was coming off the back of a drought, 2019. I think the soil had plenty of go in it. We got that early rainfall in February. We got in the perfect time when we seen absolute, like we were hook, line, and sinker on it. Last year, we had it, we'd never go at it again, and we are still pretty good. You can run a lot of stock on it. You'd have to feed it, given you have to get the urea, all the nitrogen into it to keep it going, but it seems to definitely to pay. This year, we got it in a little bit late. This year's been pretty tight. Like We had good rain, but we had a big harvest that stretched out a bit longer than what we normally did. Then um, we had a fair bit of fly pressure during the summer, and our crutching was pushed back, and everything just seemed to be pushed back. So we didn't get our grazing crop in too early, and we did get it in. The light, we haven't had much light. Um, there's been not many sunny days. So we've got one lot of grazing off it, but it's not coming back really quickly so we're not probably getting the best out of it this year is what we have in the last couple of years but I think that's just season but the proof's going to be in the pudding at the end when we get to harvest it because it's a dual purpose crop. It's been a definitely a very challenging season this one hasn't it just with rain all the way through summer and into a very wet autumn probably meant that we haven't got our sprays on when we needed to or other management operations have gotten in the way haven't they? Oh definitely it's made us try and be a bit more organised than what we usually are. <laughs> Supply issues as well would have been a bit of a problem, but you just mentioned chasing a bit of fly. What problems did you have with flies over this summer? We definitely had issues with flies, just the wet, humid conditions that didn't seem to kind of relent long summer grass around. So that, yeah, a lot of pressure there. We've been using click for quite a long time. And so we did click resistance tests. It's not dire, but it's definitely there and it's made us think more about how we're going to proceed with that issue going forward and that's in the breeding of our sheep and our timing of our operations so we can probably shy away a bit more from having a single chemical use that's something that we really discovered but yeah it wasn't a complete disaster but it's if you put a positive spin on it it's made us try and have a think outside the square a bit more about how we deal with it that's it just got to look at it and a few different other tools in breeding and, for example, what are some other things you're doing apart from breeding to try and breed in a bit more resistance to fly? Yeah, so we're highly focused on our selection of having tighter backs, good backline, not like wools that aren't opened up, anything that is getting fly blown, probably just completely removing it from the operation. But then being key with our grazing through their months and not letting them get to the point where it's a real hassle. But it is quite hard because we are a mixed enterprise and we do have a reasonable cropping program and we're all pretty busy on the header. So 
if you can find me someone, or you do a podcast on someone who's got the solution for it, I'll listen to it five or six times, I think. <laughs> right, yeah, I'll put that call to arms out for the listeners. So just touching back on the, you said you've got a mixed sheep enterprise. A lot of people would say that one sheep is maybe too many. So how do you manage basically three different sheep enterprises all with competing demands? Yeah, that's a good question. Sometimes we scratch our head and ask why we do it, but I have a love for it. I see that from a business point of view that we're spreading our risk. I could be really wrong, but I'm focused on we're trying to have some kind of product that we can output all the time, all the way through the year to generate that cash flow. To have some kind of output throughout the whole year, and that's probably why we have our two drops of our crossbred autumn and, and spring. So we always every couple of weeks, I suppose, every three weeks on average, we're selling 100, 150 odd crossbred lambs into the markets. We don't really do over the hooks or anything like that. They're just straight into Forbes through an agent. They're nothing special. I just, we're trying to aim for average, not the top of the market, not the bottom of the market, but just always have a saleable product that meets the middle of the market. And same with our wool. We're starting to spread our shearing out to eight months shearing in our ewes. So we're crutching in January. We have our main shearing in June, which is right now. And then we're going to have another shearing in September, but we'll probably talk about that later. So that's going to be spreading our workload and our shearing through the year a bit more. So I see as we might have a better chance of getting shears instead of having everything all in one part of the year. We have a fair few sheep, so it's a pretty big operation was getting the point where it was nearly three weeks worth of shearing and it gets pretty long so it's getting spread out through the year but how we manage it all we've got a pretty good team of people there's my dad and my uncle and myself and we've got a worker here and my mum and wife and pretty good family and and we all sit down and work through it when forward plan when stuff's going to be we've just started in the last couple of years using farm management software app we were using agriweb at the moment and it seems to be a pretty good tool of tracking our numbers, tracking our stock movements, because we have a bit of a cell grazing system. It's not intense cell grazing as such. It's a more freedom in it. I think on our 6,000 acres here, we've got, there would be over 120 paddocks. So there's a fair few, and we try to rotate our stock around a fair bit. So it's a tool that we can use. We can all jump on there. We can see where the mobs have been. We can see how many days they've been in there, see where they've been. So we get that kind of information, we know what's going on and, and we record all our stats in there as well. So our weights and condition scores and wool cut. So it probably helps keep track of where we're at and what we're doing. Yeah, that sounds like something pretty essential for a pretty big, complicated business, like with your quite a few decision makers or people involved in the sort of upper echelon of the business structure. Something like that would just be, yeah, almost essential. Yeah, it seems to. It's only something we've just started doing since I've come home and the business has got a bit bigger and it's something we all identify like it sounds like a complex operation, but it seems to work. But the key, as you've probably talked about, is having it work, being able to manage it and understand where everything's at. And labour might be a component of that. We can probably talk about that later or not. <laughs> so just a question I've got, like it obviously sounds like you're using the operations to sort of stagger your your income throughout the year and, and to provide you with a bit of diversity and risk management, why not just run the most profitable enterprise? I assume you've probably got those numbers in your head and I'm not going to ask you for them, but do you have a most profitable business enterprise and why don't you just use that one? The most profitable at the moment you could probably easily have a stab at is the crossbred enterprise coupled with the grazing crop enterprise and that's just sheer the market's been doing un unreal. But so is the wool. The wool seems to be making a comeback. 
I personally find it's easier to kind of keep track of that crossbred enterprise and look at the market and understand what's happening with it. I find the wool a little bit more difficult, but I really, really love the challenge that comes with the wool. I'm a pretty challenge-driven person, and we've always had it, and it's part of having the crossbred enterprise. You need to have them merino. Well, you don't have to have them, but it makes it work by having them, so you may as well do a good job of it. But past experience would probably suggest that enterprises go up and down over time and if you got too monocultured well you could have be at risk of greater loss i guess if a market falls away it just seems at the moment we're pretty happy with the mix of how we're doing it as i said before we don't really chase the top end price and the most top end quality of anything it's just more being a consistent product being able to provide it to the market and i suppose you you would dollar cost average that over a 10 or five year period it might end up different of what a spot price enterprise would be at the moment. Maybe it's a fair answer. I don't know. I think that's a really good answer. I don't think there'd be too many businesses out there that are selling something, a sheep, most weeks, and plus your wool checks coming in at different times of year and your culls selling at different times of year. I don't really know. I can't speak for a lot of other people, but in my previous kind of work, I, I just seen that as, as what really helped business, just always being having something to sell and the flexibility to sell something at any time seemed pretty pretty key was your previous experience only just come back to the farm in the last couple of years yeah what was your past job i worked as a precision farming technician i started with a dealership with machinery here in parks and then ended up with a job in the united kingdom working for the distributor for trimble ag so yeah precision farming guidance data collection and a bit of engineering and have you been able to apply any of that into your farming experience Oh, it's about the only thing I can apply, right? Because <laughs> that's what I learned. I had to bring back to the farm. But yeah, just efficiencies. That's probably what really gets me going is looking how we can be efficient, how we can leverage technology because we're probably under the pump for labor at the moment, but not being over the top with it, still trying to be reasonable and grounded and not have all the most sophisticated stuff, but make sure it's got that cost benefit. But yeah. It's got to pay its way, doesn't pay it? Pay its way, yeah. So labor's been a, an issue for you. What are some strategies you've used to overcome that? It's been a little bit of an issue. It's going to certainly become an issue. As I said, our enterprise is a little bit complex. We have a trainee at the moment. She's been wonderful. She's grown with us with the business. We've had someone before that and they helped grow with us as well. And they went on to do some different stuff. They're only young. Doing this podcast might help. There might be some young people listening who are pretty interested in farming and technology and want to learn. I don't know. You can come and learn what not to do from us. I don't know, my wife's pretty good with that. She's a teacher. She hangs around the schools. Get them young, you reckon? <laughs> oh, get them young or it wouldn't really matter, just experience. But it's good to see young people grow and give them a, an opportunity because we're going to need them in agriculture, that's for sure. Because whilst technology is really, really great, it, it can't solve every problem that we have, I don't think. I think you're being a bit humble. I think you're probably overlooking something that we were just standing in and what we're sitting under. While we probably would enjoy the sun today, but we're looking, at, just to describe it to the viewers, we're in a pretty nice set of yards that's completely undercover, and we've just walked out of a fairly new four-stand shearing shed that's got a few bells and whistles. So do you find it as hard as, say, your neighbours do to lock in some shearers? I'd like to think that we're helping trying to get people by making the environment a better place to be. With the, As you alluded to, the infrastructure, if you think it's all right, it must be all right. Pretty big investment but when you compare it to maybe what some fully cropping or arable farmers might invest into their capital for machinery 
some of the tractors, headers and sewing equipment's becoming fairly substantially priced. When you put a really good set of sheep yards that have been well thought out and designed, ergonomic, and a good shed that shearers probably want to shear in and have facilities, it's not a huge investment because it's around for a long time. You don't have to trade that stuff in and get the latest, newest and greatest, really. So so a few hundred thousand dollar investment now, this will probably still be standing in 30 or 40 years' time. I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. <laughs> and I hope we can find shears or some kind of technology that we can still utilise in it that will be flexible, that will fit in with it, definitely. But yeah, we're hoping that's going to help attract labour. Radio Luke, just for my final question, I'll let you get in out of the wind. You're a bit mad wearing shorts on a day like today. We've probably talked a bit about labour, but apart from that, what do you think is the big issue in ag at the moment? Ah, uh, well, labour's being one of them, but probably in the labour scope of people understanding and being literate with technology. We use a lot of technology here, and maybe it's to help us cut back on labour with our electronic tags. When we do have conversations with people on field days and stuff, they're always intrigued with the electronic tags and why we use them. We preg test and we cull and we go through things and it makes it really simple because we can just identify things that we want, scan it in, make a file, put mobs back together and run them as large mobs in our cell grazing system and then come back here at shearing time. When we get in the yards, we can pull them all apart again and we don't need to tag their ears or clip their ears or visually try and pick them out we use a handler here that's all automatic drafting it just picks the tag up and we can draft whether it's bearing a twin whether it's bearing a single or it was a dry or it's being culled out or classed out as a dry and then mixed back in until shearing time or a time later when we're gonna sort them out to sell xx stock so we employ a lot of technology but what we do find is the labor that we get they're not some of them aren't that literate with technology and even some older older people, people who've been in the industry for a while, they don't understand it. And I think there's a lot of crap that can come with technology. It's not sold as a, a simple thing or it's probably oversold as simple. So, yeah, something I would, would be good for the industry other than labour is when people are selling or trying to implement these things, to have them as a simple thing and help farmers or operators understand them better so they can get more out of them. Because I yeah, do tend to see people who have all the gear but no support or no idea really with it. And they're asking themselves, why are we doing this? So it sounds like not only is labour an issue, but we need skilled labour. We need people that are maybe not necessarily tertiary qualified, but they've done some courses, additional courses in TAFE, and they've done further learning. Yeah, had some exposure with technology and and agriculture. Great. Well, thanks for that, Luke. Thanks for having me out here on on Oak Hills, and I've really enjoyed our chat. That's right. Thank you, Ron. Hope so you get something out of it. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources. We've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Nerily Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.